This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day everybody, welcome to the show. I've got a magnificent conversation to share with you featuring Kevin Martin from the group Candlebox. Now the catalyst for our chat is due to the group's first and last Australian shows. That's it, they're calling it quits after, maybe not just directly after these shows here, but the foreseeable future in the band does not involve a band. And you'll hear why Kevin talks about, well he talks about what what might possibly be happening. Put it this way, the door's still open, I think. The door's still open, but fans have got to want it. That's always the case anyway. But in addition to talking about the tour, the reasons for shutting shop, we dive deep. We dive deep because Kevin is an industry veteran. He's been around a very, very long time. Candlebox are as old as any of those Seattle bands because they are a Seattle group. So he's got the stories, he's got the tales, and he shares many on this episode. You'll hear his take on ego in the industry, what happened at Lollapalooza 2000, sorry, 1994. Gosh, long time ago now, almost 30 years ago now. But it was his commentary about Jason Newstead in Metallica, because Candlebox toured with Metallica, that are worth sticking around for alone, but plenty of other killer banter. I really enjoy Kevin's company. I wish him all the success in the world after Candlebox. He's just one of those guys. So here he is, Kevin Martin from Candlebox. How's the, uh, I know you've been doing a lot of these these Zoomers with us in, in Australia, mate. How have they been going? They've been great. You know, it's um, it's been really surprisingly good because you know we i've never been to australia i've been trying to come there for 30 years to play shows and you know it's just i've never had an opportunity and so i'm stoked that actually people want to talk to us and and are interested in actually chatting with me about what the band's doing (laughs) yeah yeah hey sorry to dip into your personal life for a moment but i was reading somewhere online it was a social media post that you're actually married to an aussie for a bit is that correct yeah natalie and i've been together 23 years and um, she's from Noosa, so we spend every Christmas up in Noosa. Oh, I've, I've got a place at Marichidor, mate, so just down the road. Yeah. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's, mate, it's God's country. You, you know it. You know it. I mean, you, yeah. you've been there. You know, you practically live there from the sounds of things. And no, well, <laughs> mate, it's uh, southeast Queensland, I'm convinced, is the greatest part of, of anywhere on the globe. And I've travelled a lot, but it's just so good here, isn't it? I wouldn't, I would not disagree with you. It's, it's my favorite place. You know, it's, I've been, I've told the story a million times, you know, over the years that my first band was called Wagga Wagga. For some reason, I've had this affinity with Australia since I was, since I could walk. Um, and I'm, and I'm not really sure why or what, you know, Pear Ubu is one of my favorite bands, Hoodoo Gurus, uh, Powderfinger, the list goes on and on. But um, I think when I met Natalie, I was, I actually thought she was English because she's got one of those kind of soft Australian posh accents. Oh, yeah. So, um, I said, what, what part of England are you from? She goes, I'm fucking Australian. I was like, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to marry you. That's great. No, that's nice, mate. No, that's great. Oh, well, it's, is there, I, I, you've probably been asked this question a hundred times as well, but um, is it just due to promoters not reaching out to you with an appropriate deal that you haven't been able to come down here with the band? I think, you know, we've, I'm not sure if that's, the, if that's the case. Thank you very much. Um, I think that, we, we, you know, we kind of always have been the redheaded stepchild of the Seattle music scene. And I think that the promoters in Australia, even though we sold, you know, 
records there and back in the you know in the debut album days and um, I actually have a gold record in Australia, um, as far as I know, but I just, I think we, because we never went and promoters kind of never really knew about us. We just weren't invited. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been friends with the guys from live since 1994. And I've said to Ed a million times, Hey, next time you go to Australia, take us with you. But, um, it just it never seemed to happen. So luckily this, you know, silverback promoter just decided to take a chance on us and, and, um, fingers crossed, you know, the shows do well. I mean, it is my first and last tour of, of Australia. That's what we're saying. But I think if things go well and, and the and the dates do well, I, I happily come back and play some festivals or something in the fall. I just I love Australia. I've been trying to play the Great Northern. I mean, like I said, I've come every Christmas. I've said to the Great Northern promoter, I'm like, look, just book me. I'll I'll play acoustic. I don't care if I'm playing to five people or five hundred. Doesn't matter to me. I just want to play in Australia. So I don't really know what, you know, why, but you know, here we come. So we're getting there. Okay, so it's not necessarily the end of the band. It's because uh, I know it's not being pitched as like a, a kiss end of the road style thing, but for you guys, it's just well, for, for what you understand and know about what the other guys' intentions and plans are, it could be it. But for you and Candlebox's music, the legend could continue. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, right now the goal for me is to put it all away. But you know, um, I've been known to not do that. I just, I don't want to tour anymore, man. It's just so exhausting, unless it's Australia, unless it's places I haven't been, you know, uh, like when we go to England or the UK or or even Europe, any part of Europe, I look so much forward to that than I do the States because it's people that I don't see, you know, it's, it's faces that I haven't played for before. And, you know, you can only tour the States so many times before you, you start seeing the same, you know, 2000 people every single night at every show and you recognize them because they've been at every show. Um, so for me, you know, if things do go well, I will certainly come back and I would, I would easily, you know, and, and gladly go to the UK and Europe and, and do some dates as well. I just can't do the States anymore. I don't want to make records anymore. I don't love it the way I used to. And, um, and I just want, you know, I want different experiences. Yeah. Is that due to the, the, the grind of the industry and the fact that there's, I've been doing this for a while now and I've spoken to literally hundreds of people in your position and yeah. it's a very dishonest industry and it can wear you yeah. out. Yeah. Is it that is completely dishonest. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 I mean, listen, I've made, I've made five records in the past, um, let's say 15 years. And I think, you know, maybe 2000 people have heard them and, you know, I've done deals with, with labels on every one of those. And the promise has always been, Oh, we're going to spend, you know, 200,000 on marketing and we're going to do this and this and this, and they don't do any of it. And then at the end of it, they go, well, you didn't sell any records. And you're like, well, let's see your marketing budget. Well, we didn't spend marketing on that. We did this, you know, we went to radio. Why would you go to radio? We're considered a heritage act. So, you know, that's the other downside of being, you know, a band from the nineties from Seattle is that you're now on every classic rock station across the United States. So you're not even considered contemporary anymore. It's, it's kind of a, you know, it is a completely heartbreaking and dishonest industry. And, and it's, and it's kind of why I'm, I'm at that point where I'm like, I don't want to make music for the same 2000 people anymore. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted to make records that hundreds of thousands of people heard and millions of people heard. And, and, you know, all of my contemporaries, my favorite bands, um, you know, they're, they all are playing, you know, going out with the Foo Fighters, they're going out with Pearl Jam or somebody like that. And Candlebox is just this band that's just kind of had to fight our, our way out of every fucking paper bag for the past 30 years. Yeah, that's weird. You guys were huge back in 94, 95. I remember that because I had a, a sample. I remember those cassettes I used to hand out at concerts and it was a label yeah. or agency or whatever, but I, your songs are on that. And um, yeah. I was thinking, I hope you guys tour. And then, and the, you know, as you know, it didn't happen. And 
But then something else happened not long after that, and we didn't know it at the time, but that scene you were a part of was the last great gasp of mainstream impact of rock and roll, of rock music, because now it's like jazz, metal and rock. Yeah. It's just you got your aficionados, people like me and you. But for the most part, programmers, the social media elite, all the assholes, excuse my you know expression around it, but I just can't stand yeah. the way they push urban music and stuff on the youth like the kids these days don't even couldn't even probably name a rock band outside of maybe maybe green day or metallica maybe i don't even know whether they could even name them at this point but did you was there any inkling given you're in the in the industry though was there any inkling that the late 90s and the mid 90s it was what i mentioned it was the last gasp of rock music in that way yeah, I think we all, you know, certainly in Seattle, I think when I, you know, I moved there when I was 14 years old uh, in 1984. And so, you know, kind of at the, at the height of the bubble building. And mm. I mean, first concert I saw was Soundgarden and Chris Cornell was playing drums and they were a three piece. Um, but I think we all knew in Seattle that that when the music started to happen and, and certainly when Nirvana's Nevermind broke, um, that it was going to break the industry. And so it didn't just blow up as an album and actually broke the industry. It broke down so many barriers. And I think that that honesty and sincerity that came with that record and with those bands is really what changed the movement and, and the, uh, um, the whole direction. I mean, it was, it was literally like a barge just, you know, ran into a ferry and dumped the thing in the fucking water and said, we're done. We're moving on. This is a brand new thing. Mm-hmm. And it never stopped. And, 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 and when it did stop, um, you know, 99, 2000, you know, you you, you kind of look back. Even then, I remember I remember sitting with Guy, Guy Osiri in, in Maverick Records, and and I was like, yeah, we were trying to get out of the deal with rec, with Maverick, and and things weren't going well, and we'd done the Happy Pills record, and and um, I said, you know, what's your next step? Like, what are you going to do? Because none of this music that's coming out right now is going to matter. And I'm mean, like, of course, Corn, you know, great fucking band, and and um. And and a lot of the kind of that metal, the depth tones, of course, you know, that kind of great metal, still the sincerity, still honest, still real. Mm. Um, but um, it didn't have that, it didn't have that guttural friction that that the Seattle music scene had, or even, you know, the Chicago scene with the pumpkins and mm. and Fig Dish and Triple Fast Action and all that kind of and Veruca Salt. I mean, there was such a really great fucking energy to the music then, and and it just became disassociative and and um it lost you know it lost its vision it's almost like when new wave came along out of the punk rock movement um that was the decline of of you know the the british music scene per se until the 90s when you know the happy mondays came out and all that thing started to kind of re-energize the the manchester scene um you're never going to see that again. We're never going to see what happened in Seattle ever again. I mean, it's just not going to happen. No, I agree. I agree completely with you on that point. Yeah, it's just so weird to think that that was it. But uh, talking about Maverick, I understand Madonna handpicked all of the artists that were signed to the label. So did you end up having any interaction with her at all? Yeah, yeah. We met her um, We met her about a year after our record came out. We were on tour with um rush we were playing madison square garden in new york she had just come off of i think when when they actually signed us when our record came out she was still on not the blend uh justify my love tour maybe i can't remember which tour she was on so we really didn't even get to, to see her um until her tour ended and and we were in new york with with rush went to dinner with her and she was lovely i mean she's a, a, a 
really smart woman and she loved the bands that were on the label. Um, she came to see us play several times and she was really supportive and, and just to, just to kind of, you know, as a vanity label owner, she was hands-on with everything. And, and, um, Freddie and Guy, uh, I mean, the team was so small when we, when we were the first band to sign to Maverick. So, um, it was Freddie, Freddie Demand, Guy Osiri, Ronnie Dashev, um, Abby Conowich, Madonna and Lionel Conway. That was, that was Maverick Records and Candlebox. Mm. So um, it it really, you know, for her to kind of take that risk and and put herself out there, and she made a lot of phone calls for us, man. I mean, she she called MTV, she called VH1, she called promoters and said, "Give him a fucking chance," you know. And and that was something that a young band from Seattle really needed because you know we came along three years after all those other fucking bands, and so our record in '93 was kind of like, okay, we're done with Seattle. And she pushed, she pushed us really, really hard. And, and of course, Letterman, um, her relationship with Dave, you know, he, he was really gracious with us and had us on there three times on the first album. So, um, you know, those, those things were really important to us. Did you find, given the era which you came out in, so the, the debut, I think it's 94, I'm not mistaken. So that's when I heard it. So I don't, I... it came out in Australia in 94, 93 in, the, in Seattle, in the States. There you go. There you go. So, but it was right on the cusp of when the internet was about to drop in its first version when we all sort of had it on our dial-up machines and all the yeah. rest of it. Did you notice that that made any any positive impact on the bands, on on, on getting you out there to people? In other words, did it open you up to new territories? Not at that time. One of my one of my best friends, actually my roommate in in um in college, um, Julian, he was working for Microsoft at the time and they were developing um, that early platform of, of what became, um, their music. I forget what the music program was called that they released, but he was one of the first ones on that. And in the apartment, you know, he had that dial up and the modem thing going and all that stuff. And I was like, what is this? And he's like, this is the future. And, um, and he, he still works at Microsoft. He's actually, um, one of their senior executives there, but he's developed, you know, he developed a ton of stuff. And I think for us, it really didn't start to, kind of work for us until around 2008 um when we focused mainly on the new record we're releasing into the sun but we really did like an online campaign that's when we noticed there was a real change because we started being able to connect with all those fans that we had lost in the 90s i don't think i don't think we could have used it i mean i when we released it on maverick i think they did the 98 was their was their release for for their record store online and i mean you couldn't you try to purchase vinyl or whatever from their store and it didn't work you know none of the shit was working but they had a page um and i think it was you know it was about having a landing page it was about having some place that people could visit but you really couldn't do anything unfortunately because they didn't want to spend the money on on developing it like most record labels which is what ended up hurting them anyways because they were you know informed that, that music was going to get pirated and they didn't want to do what Sony did with um, with um, television and and um, and film. You know, they didn't want to block that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, did you notice though with with Napster? Did you notice though that that gave the band a bit of an uptick when the file sharing thing started to become? Well, it was only there for a short period of time. It was six yeah. months or thereabouts, wasn't it? But I know with bands like Iron Maiden and stuff, it introduced them to an entirely new generation of fans. So, did that happen for you guys? No, we weren't. Uh, that that whole Napster thing did not affect us. I mean, we may have seen one percent growth, but you know, at that point, I think we were such a, again, a second thought from that Seattle music scene. If if they were trading anything, if they, you know, it was going to be Pearl Jam, it was going to be Nirvana, it was going to be Soundgarden, it was going to be live shows. Um, 
It didn't affect us at all because we we had kind of stepped out of the light, uh, the limelight at that point, and we were just trying to survive as a band. Mm. Were you the sort of band that could play shows with bands like Queen Shrike and then Soundgarden? Could you? So, to my, for my taste, you straddle the divide a little bit. We did. We actually did shows with Soundgarden back in the day. We never played with Queensryche, um, but back in the day, we did shows with Soundgarden. Tool actually opened for Candlebox, surprisingly. Mm. Um, and, and so did Radiohead. Um, mm. We had the, the great success of the debut album, so I, I can at least say that Radiohead opened for me. Um, but yeah, we, we, we could have done that. And we, you know, we had some of those. It's funny because, you know, I, I knew Chris. I met him when I was 16. I was working at Fluvog Shoes with Susan Silver, who was his manager and ex-wife now. Um, yeah. But at the time, she was managing Soundgarden and stuff. And so the guys would come in for the flyers. And Chris and I, would we used to sit around and talk about music all the time. Um, when the band happened, I never asked him for a favor, you know. And um, and I probably should have. Like, I, I could have, you know, the band certainly could have used a, a voice like Chris Cornell saying, hey, you should check out Candlebox's new record. Mm. But um, I never did that because I, I felt like I wanted I wanted us to you know, be our own. I wanted us to have our own footing and, and be able to, um, you know, kind of argue that the band is, you know, worth more than the, you know, the Seattle guys telling people that we're good, but I probably should have asked for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could have done, we could have certainly toured with Soundgarden. I mean, we've, we've got, you know, our second record, Lucy's got some pretty progressive tracks on it that, that would have worked well with, with that audience. Mm-hmm. I've always, I've always thought that we should be touring with, uh, Alice in Chains. But I know that Sean Kinney doesn't like the band, so that's why that doesn't. <laughs> Is that right? Do you, do you know what that's? Yeah, about? yeah. Hello, I mean we're friends. I've known him. I've known he used to borrow drumsticks from me. I was a drummer before I was a singer, and he used to come to my rehearsal room and borrow drumsticks from me all the time. Um, but he said he's like said he goes, dude, I love you as a person. We're friends. He goes, I don't want to listen to Candlebox every night, and I'm like, that's fair enough. I understand. God, it's a bit honest though, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's how he is. I mean, and that's the you know that's kind of the thing about those Seattle bands, man. None of them, none of them would bullshit you. They would never say, "Yeah, we're going to help you out," and then not. They just would. They say, "Nah, I don't like it." Jesus. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I I think you you do. My values, I suppose, is you help your mates out. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, they did. You know, if you think about it, if you think about it, they did because you know. From from its inception, the grunge movement with Mud Honey, you know, prior to that being um, uh, uh, spacing on the name, but um, the Melvins. Deep Six, with, oh, uh, well, the Melvins, um, Green River, uh, yeah. Malfunction, you know, like Soundgarden, early stuff. So, kind of the, the inception of the grunge movement, um, all those bands played together, or they were in a band together. So, you know, if it's like it was so ancestral, dude, the Seattle music scene. Hiro Yamamoto was in four other bands before he was in Soundgarden. Mm. He was also in a band called Truly. Uh, Matt Cameron was in a band called Bam Bam before he was in Soundgarden. Two of the guys from Bam Bam joined Truly later on in their inception. So Mark Arm being, you know, kind of the godfather of that movement, he's, you know, God knows how many bands he's had. The Melvins, same thing. Uh, Skin Yard, Screaming Trees, Grunt Truck. They all played in bands together. Blood Circus, uh, I think Brent was in four bands from from Seattle music scene. So it was really, really ancestral. So when we came along, like I said, we were the redheaded stepchild or the, or the little brother that, you know, they didn't really want at the party. So that's kind of why we never, the only person who ever gave us any love uh, in any way, shape or form publicly was Mark Arm. And, and that's just because I've known him for, you know, 50 fucking years and, yeah. and he's a great guy. 
but he's the only one who ever kind of gave us any kind of credit. I, I know Kurt and the metal well, Kurt in particular is from Seattle. Um, metal yep. Church, I know they're a different scene, but did you have any interactions with those guys? With the, with the Nirvana guys? Oh, metal metal church. Kurt. Oh, metal church. No, yeah. I I never I never knew those guys, and uh, I always loved them. I was I was sad to hear that he passed this year. No, they uh, they were great, man. Metal church was. They were they were a special kind of rock and roll that came out, and you know a lot of people don't don't even know they were from Seattle. Yeah, I know they're a Seattle band, like Queen yeah. Strike. A lot of people don't actually. A lot of people don't realize you guys are from Seattle either. There's a yeah. There's just a thing, isn't there, where people sort of associate certain bands with a region, and other bands they don't. But uh, mm-hmm. what, what was you? You may have answered this, and we've probably touched on it, but um, you've you have survived, and you've got to the point where it's it's you've had a credible career but what would you say the most significant challenge was that you had to overcome you know in the last sort of 30 years whilst you've been a working musician ego just ego i mean ego is just the it's the worst part of being in a band and it's you know it's it's crushed like we're there's a documentary coming out about candlebox um next year and and you know the people are going to be surprised to see you know what really happened to us back in the you know the 90s um, ego is just the, it's the biggest fucking ruiner of, of everything in the world. And that's the, I mean, if, whether it's Guy O'Siri from Maverick Records or Freddie DeMann from Maverick Records or the guys in my band or other bands that we played shows with. I mean, when we, here, I'll give you an example. When we did Woodstock 94, we were the only band on that festival that had a record in the top 10, let alone top 20 billboard. We have the number seven record. We were added for the Friday night. We were the headliner on the Friday night with the Violent Femmes. We went to do the press conference in the press tent. Um, our A&R rep, um, a guy named Larry White, who had worked with the Chili Peppers. He'd worked with Joy Division. He worked with everybody. Um, walks in and was like, hey, Larry, how are you? He's like, ladies and gentlemen, so nice to see you all. Um, of course, you know who I am. And I'm, I'm here with one of our favorite bands from, from Warner Brothers Maverick Records right now. Candlebox, they have the number seven record in the country. They're currently moving 175,000 units a week, blah, 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 blah. And they're so stoked to be here. We'd like to open the floor for questions. Not one fucking question. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been, it's been an uphill battle, man. That's, um, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that, that speaks to the ignorance of, of journalists at the time who only wanted to speak to Billy Joe, whatever his name is from Green Day or what have yeah. you. Well, even then, like, I don't think nobody really gave a shit about Green Day at that point. You know, they were just, Dookie was blowing up, but it wasn't as exciting as, if they hadn't had that mud fight at Woodstock May 4, I don't know if they'd have got as much press out of, of, of what they were doing as they did. But that mud fight was so substantial. It's such a game changer for the weekend that it, it was all over every single news organization. Green Day was creeping. Their record was not selling great. You know, and because they were our partners on Warner Brothers. So and Helena Corum, who was touring with us as our A&R agent, was also their A&R rep for Warner Brothers. So we were we were hearing the stories and going back and forth as to what was happening. And it was um, it really was that kind of when they everybody started throwing the mud and shit. That's when everybody paid attention to them. Was that your perception at the time around around all of the mud throwing and the stuff? Was it something that just. You thought, oh well, it'll be here today, gone tomorrow, that sort of thing. But it's ended up becoming the enduring iconography of that festival, of that that event, that entire event. One hundred percent. And I mean, I think that everybody knew that it was going to be the one thing that everybody talked about. You know, for the ninety nine one, it's you know, 
Limp Biscuit with the let's break some shit and everybody burning, oh, you know, the, the, yeah. the house down. But with, yeah. with Woodstock 94, it was that Green Day moment where everybody's just like, what are these fucking... And, and it's perfect for them because they're brats and they're punk rock brats. And it yeah. was... It was exactly what needed to happen. I mean, you know, standing on the side of the stage watching that was hilarious and getting hit with mud was even funnier, but they didn't, they didn't fucking care. They were so stoked to be doing it. And that's what's so cool about it. And that was what was so cool about Green Day um, and, and kind of that early, that early rock and roll scene that was happening in the nineties, you know, it was just, it was just cool. Nobody gave a shit. We didn't, nobody was dressing up and leather pants and you know crap like that to go out and play shows it was like we're wearing our clothes and this is the show we're playing and if you if you like it great if you don't who cares i don't know whether ed and the guys in live told you but when they came to australia for the alternative nation festival in 1995 the same thing happened to them in, mm-hmm. in at the sydney show they got pelted with mud as well and i think it was either him or ed or the guitarist i can't remember his name or michael Chad Taylor, promoter yeah he said something like hey we're not fucking green day yeah 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 chad taylor because i had the i had the gracious view with chad and, and we've talked about that several times um oh, there you go. yeah it's yeah it's it's it's. i mean it's really funny but they you know and and live was huge in australia i mean they still are which is amazing um yeah. Yeah. people love them and they're and they're a great band you know yeah well personally i found it a bit odd um because uh no disrespect to them whatsoever but they're you know powderfinger who you already mentioned they're sort of similar vein to that um yeah. They just occasionally you find a band in Australia, people around here just pick up on it and they just go, 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 and they don't let go of it. And that was one of those bands. But but it does that an adjacent point to that would be I think in every every serious artist's career, like like a career like yours, there's a sliding doors moment where things could have gone either way. Did that do you remember when that was for you? probably 99 98 when we were doing the happy pills record and everything had gone to shit at that point with the band um I mean, we were fighting with maverick our a and r guy guy osiri wasn't even our a and r guy anymore they hired um uh what the hell was his name uh tim i can't remember oh uh no um guy who signed allison chains nick um Oh, I don't know the guy. Just Turzo. Yeah, yeah. Nick yeah. Turzo. So Nick Turzo became our A&R guy, like overnight. <laughs> we're in the middle of a record. And he walks into the studio and he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't like any of this. I don't know uh, what you guys are doing, but we're going to need to scrap this and start over. And we were like, we're fucking recording a record right now. Um, and that was, a, that was a strange thing. And then we stopped, rewrote six songs. And that's when I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what this is going to be for me anymore. And I, and I'm surprised we made it through the record and surprised that we actually were able to get happy pills out and, and on a label as well. Um, because I think we were just, we were just so kind of beat down at that point. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I I don't think that the modern rock and metal for the music fan, the young, you know, the Gen Zer, if you like, understands how much clout and how much power the A&R man actually had in, in the recording studio with bands like you guys. It was huge. Yeah. That's just one yeah. Yeah. mini, mini. Yeah, when they say no, there's no money. The money yeah. stops. And and that was, you know, that was that was the hardest thing back then, man, was that to have Nick say, yeah, you know, we're going to stop this right now and I need a single. So we we worked on Sometimes uh, and it's all right. 
We wrote, yeah, so that's when we, so that's when we wrote Sometimes It's All Right and Happy Pills uh, for the album. Um, because Nick was like, we're not paying for anything else until we get these fucking songs right. Yeah, okay. But, but on, a more, on a more positive note, what would you say has been the highlight or, highlight or maybe even the highlights throughout the career so far? Just the fans. I mean, you know, I'd love to meet the first person that bought our CD outside of Seattle. <laughs> like, I don't know who that is, but I would, I would love to just go walk up to him and say, hey, man, thanks for starting this. You know, because it, it, that first record, it's it, it, the happiest accident we've ever had as a band. Um, I don't think it should have ever worked out the way it did. Um, I don't particularly think it's a great record. Um, I know people would argue with me, you know, the seven and a half million fans around the world that would argue with me about that. But I do believe that um, that the fans are the best thing that I've experienced over the past 30 years. I mean, the music is one thing and, and touring with bands you love and, and, you know, meeting the guys from Rush and, and, and that sort of thing and Metallica and whatnot. Those are magical moments. But the fans just without them, you know, it, the story is as cliche as it is to say it's there's no career. Have you read some of the YouTube comments under the videos for Far Behind and some of those early singles? Have you seen what people are saying about the band? No. Saved my life, gave me a connection to my long deceased father, this sort of thing. They're, they're very profound comments that are under that people have left for you. Wow. That's amazing. No, I've never, I, I don't, I don't use YouTube. So I, maybe I should get on there to feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, when your biography comes out, mate, make sure you will just, just have a bit of a read of that. And anytime you sort of, you're writing through those moments where it's a bit of a dirge and it's a grind, mate. But, it's rock rock music is enduringly powerful in that it's like a friend and it can pull yep. you through those moments, especially when you're young, mate, and life sucks and doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, God, God help me, if it wasn't for rock and metal for me, mate, I think life would have been profoundly more bleak. And I think that I share that with a lot of people that are into the music. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I, you know, I've, I've had bands that changed my life when I was a kid. Henry Rollins, I mean, my first concert, I was 12 years old. I went to see Black Flag. Oh, yeah. And San Antonio. And, I jumped up on stage to do a stage dive and I hit the ground and nobody picked me up. And Henry saw that. So he grabbed me, pulled me on stage and I ended up singing the, the latter part of damaged with him. And then in 1994, I toured Europe with him and um, I couldn't talk to him because I was so like starstruck. And he's like, what's your problem? We get to, we get to Hamburg the last show. And I was like, dude, I, I can't like, you changed my life when I was fucking 12 years old. You changed everything for me. I go, I have, I have every record you've ever released. I have, you have signed seven of my fucking black flag, 12 inches. I'm like, you fucking saved my life as a kid. And it's just weird that I'm on tour with you. You know, what a fucking strange, weird world we live in. And he was like, okay, cool. I just thought you were a prick from Seattle. And that's what he said to me. And I was like, nice to meet you. Thanks very much. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Are you still in touch with Henry? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I bumped into him about 10 years ago at a party in LA, but no, I don't, I don't keep attached to him. Intense guy. He's got a lot to yeah. share. He's, he's, he's yeah. the only person that I've ever seen, or I don't know him, but he's the only person I've ever seen that seems to be more at ease and more himself in front of tens of thousands of people than in a room with somebody just having a conversation. And, and I've, I've been able to triangulate that by talking to ex-agents and things like that who talk about how awkward he can be just yep. just in the day to day but he's just who he is who we've all seen he is well you know? he has he has that memory too where like, he never forgets anything so um like 
there's like, you know, like some actress has it as well. Like he can remember, like when I said to him, I was like, you know, I jumped on stage and he was like, you're that kid. And I said, yeah, he goes, that was SBC hall in San Antonio in 90. He goes, that was 82. Right. And I said, yeah, it was 82. And he's like, holy yeah. shit. You're that kid. I mean, he remembers everything. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's an amazing memory to have that. Yeah. Please tell me you've got designs on a biography or, or a memoir. No, I've, I've been, I've been asked to, to write the book. Um, you know I mean? I think that there's a lot, there's a lot that I could talk about and, and I, and but there's what I'd really like to talk about. I think I'd have to probably release the book after I die, you know, yeah. touring with Metallic, uh, touring with, with Rush, touring with Aerosmith, you know, the things that I've seen, you know, backstage at Letterman, you know, it's, there's so much stuff that needs to be told. And I, and I just, you know, um, I don't know, man, I'm not sure if I want to share that part of my life. It's, it's, it's something that, and, and again, I've, you know, I've had other friends that said, well, then don't write about that, write about everything you've experienced getting up to this point. But I don't know if I'm that interesting. I, th I think you're definitely, you know I mean? yeah, I know. I think you're interesting. I think, I think you definitely tick that box, but I agree with you. You've got to be comfortable within yourself before you start sharing those sort of, yeah. Those memories, those memories that you hold. And and just just on that note, touring with Metallica, did you did you witness any of the tension between Jason and the rest of the band? It was incredibly tense. Um yeah. that whole tour in 94 was and he wasn't even they weren't even gonna kick him out at that point. It just was he just was such the outsider. You know, he did not live that life that Lars and and James and Kirk lived, where it was just like, you know party, 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 party. Jason was like, I want to play fucking music and I want to rock out. And that's what I want to do. And we would spend a lot of time with him because I never did. I didn't, I wasn't like a blow guy. I never partied like that. So Jason and I hung out a lot and just would talk music. And, and cause I, I did not, and I was like, I'm not about to sit around and do cocaine with, you know, Lars or whatever, and just talk about a bunch of bullshit for fucking four hours. You know, that wasn't my thing. Um, not, and not, there's nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't my cup of tea. And, and, uh, and I really, yeah, I'll do a Blanton's, please. Um, and I really, um, I, I, I liked him. He was a really, really nice guy. But there was, there was crazy tension. That whole tour was really tough, man, because, you know, they were on that last, I think, the third year of the Black Album. And, and they were selling out 70,000, 80,000 seats, you know, still on that record. It was fucking crazy. Yeah, it's odd. It's a phenomenon that record there. And to be honest, I don't even think it's that great an album. It's a, it's a decent yeah. album. I'm not saying it's bad, yeah. but it, yeah. I, I can't listen to it beyond the mid nineties yeah. or what have you. But yeah, the the Jason thing. He's one bloke. I, I've had. I've got a bunch of Jason stories. This is another one. Um, one day he will tell he tell his story because at the moment he's not prepared to do it. And I get that. No, you can just see the suffering that poor bastard has gone through. You can see it. It's wretched. It's he's got the lines. He's got the suffering lines on his face. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> they were hard on him, man. I mean, they were hard on him. Even his crew guys, you know, that that worked for him were hard on him. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What what about what about Joey and Steve? Because in Aerosmith, because they they didn't get along either. We didn't see them much. Um we only did, I think we did like three or four weeks with them. We only interacted with them. One time, which was like two nights before the New Year's Eve show, which was the New Year's Eve show was in Boston. And um, yeah, we really didn't have much of a of a connection with those. The Flaming Lips guys, we 
you know, we're inseparable with them. It was a blast. Same with the Rush guys. Like, we would hang out in their dressing room. They can hang out with our dressing room. But, mm. uh, yeah, the, the, the Aerosmith guys, I mean, because they were all sober and they were trying to stay sober. And, and you know, we were still drinking and stuff. So it was, um, we had to stay in our dressing room if we had alcohol or whatever. But um, they were a great band. I mean, their performances were spectacular every night. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the other thing about Rush. You mentioned Rush. There just aren't any bad stories out there about those guys. No. So and, you, and you can't. Even Joe Perry, like Joe Perry. So when Aerosmith took Rush out, they gave him half PA, half lights and sound. Um, and that was in like 70, I believe it was 76. Because the guys in Rush told us a story years later um, when we toured with them. And when Joe left the band in 79 and he went out and opened up for Rush, they gave him full lights, full PA, full sound, full crew, full, you know, dressing room, everything. And he even said to them, he's like, I can't believe you guys are being this nice to me. And he goes, well, it's not you, it's your band. You know, that's what the guys in Russia said. Thank you. And, and it, and it was, it wasn't, you know, personality wise. Um, it's just, you know, they're weird dudes and they're from Boston and they kind of always were considered the, you know, the American stones, which they didn't like. And, um, and, and, and from our understanding of, of touring with them, um, they just didn't like themselves. Um, and, you know, and, and it wasn't that they didn't like one another. They just didn't like themselves. And, and, you know, can you imagine being in Aerosmith and having to be sober, you know, like you're one of the biggest rock and roll bands in the world in the, in the eighties and you, you know, your careers come back with the record pump and, and you're ginormous and you've got to go out and play shows with guys in the band you don't really like, and you don't really like yourself and you got to do it sober. It must be a really, really strange feeling. Well, you just hope you're making bank. That's that's the only reason you yeah. do it. I mean, it can't, that's, yeah, that's why they tour. Yeah, ex- exactly. I know it's a bit sad at this point. I'm I'm seeing. Uh, well, look, we're all seeing it. You know, I, I really get the impression with with you and with Candlebox that this is for the love of it. You just enjoy doing it at this point. But that's there it. Are, but the, these bands that are signed to these bloody labels at the moment. Now, most of the labels do it. The albums are just there to support the touring, which is where they're making all of the money. Now, I know they're kind of victims of that that business yep. model because of what happened with streaming and the like, so I'm not too critical about it. But holy shit, man, where are the classic modern rock albums these days? They're just, they aren't there. They aren't well, there. labels don't allow them. Labels don't allow them. You know, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, the, of Gang of Youths, and I think that mm. I love, I mean, I love what they're producing. I know that they're not producing, you know, rock and roll, but because it's pop but at least they're epic albums and and it's a band they're a band of guys that aren't afraid a guitar player left before this last record right the, the main songwriter i'm not sure what his name honest with you yeah but but i love i love the fact that they're they're allowing themselves to put out these albums that are you know 18 19 songs you know in america labels will let you release 12 but they'll only pay you for 10 it's a complete fucking con job so mm. it's a different you know it is very different. Get out of here, you fucking bee. Um, it's just a different, it's a different world. But yeah, there's no one's, labels don't allow it. They, you know, Iron Maiden, if they tried to come out right now, it would never happen. You know, even Avenged Sevenfold, I don't think, I think they're actually getting grief right now for, for their last record. And, you know, the fans are kind of bored of them because they've been gone for so long and, you know, and all that sort of thing. So um, I don't know, man. I, I, I think that there are labels, like we almost signed to that Golden Robot, which is over there. I believe they're out of Melbourne. I love talking to people like you, mate, who've actually been there and done it and who've managed to have the career because it, you can't do it anymore. It's gone. It's no. done. And, mate, I I feel like when guys like you no longer want to make music 
um, it's really down to the metal artists because the rock side of things, you know, there's a great band fleet thing, but I can't connect with that shit. Um, no. It's not, you know what I mean when I say it's not authentic. God, God, God bless them. Good luck to them. But I don't no, think I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't even, I don't understand that band at all. No, I, I look, I've put it on once or twice and I, it's like, it just sounds like a cover band to me, like a really polished cover band with a bit more mainstream edge than what Led Zeppelin yeah. would have had. But um, I just feel and like I'd rather listen to Kingdom, I'd rather listen to Kingdom Kung if, if I'm going to listen to a band that sounds like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah, it's just there, there are a lot of. I don't want to paint too bleak a picture. Then my mate Matt Wilcock down in Melbourne, he's in Shotgun Mistress. He's got Werewolf. Oh, yeah, yeah gr- great band, Shotgun Mistress. But he, even there are there's things like you know, I don't oh, think no. their next album's going to come out, mate. Yeah, and I've got it because he sent it to me. But um, it's a killer fucking album too, man. But this is what I mean. Like the business side of it has just become so cutthroat to the point where the legitimate releases can't be released. Hey, look, I'm an author, mate. And I release books myself these days because I can't get Hachette to return a phone call. Nobody cares. Yeah. Unless, yeah. You, unless you're established and got like 100,000 Facebook followers or whatever more, actually. Yeah. They don't want to know. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. Mate, it's been fantastic to chat with you. Really, uh, you know, I really like this chat, I've got to say. So um, good luck on the tour, mate. You know it's going to be a success that there will be plenty of people down here, mate. And I will um, – look, I don't want to give it the kiss of death and say I'll definitely be in the audience because that's when the kids, you know, I've got something on that night or something, but I'm going to try and be in the audience. I would love to I would love to meet you, man. So let me let me know if you are – I mean, you can reach out to me via the Instagram page. I run the Candlebox one. So if you're going to be oh, there, sure. please do. Let me know, and I'd, and I'd love to say hello. Thank you very much, brother. I really appreciate it. That's very kind. Thank you. Thanks, mate. All right, all the best, man. Catch ya. We'll see ya. Tremendous fella. It might sound like a cliche because I say it quite a bit, but I just truly love talking to the fellas that have been in the bands for decades. They've been there, they've done it, they've got the stories to share, as you just heard. Exactly why I love doing this podcast here. Had a good chat with the brothers from Obituary as well. Was the they were a day apart, so it was a very good week. It was last week, actually, I've just been so flat out, but uh, it was a very good week that week for the podcast. Now, if you enjoyed that chat with Kevin Martin from Candlebox, you will like many more that I have posted over at scarsandguitars.com. And if you like listening, I know you do because you're a, you're a smart person. You're listening to the show after all, which means you like reading. You like a book from time to time, and you're in luck because I've written one. Click on the link in the banner on the website and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. You know what to do from there. If you do purchase the book, do hit me up because I want to thank you in person. Rightio, there's some more information to share with you about the book in the moment. But before we get to that, I want to bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. I am the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. Until next time, it is a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, 
such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he, he was, very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.